and welcome to another edition of Career Education Report. I am Jason Altmeyer, and today we are going to be talking politics, elections, the House of Representatives, the Senate at the federal level. We have somebody who knows more about those topics really than anybody else. There's nobody I can tell you on Capitol Hill who is more in tune with what is happening in Congress than Chad Pergram. He is the congressional correspondent for Fox News and has been with Fox News since 2007. This is a treat for me because I have been on the other side of interviews from Chad many times. So it's a, it's a treat for me to ask the questions this time. So you get revenge is what you're telling me, right? <laughs> this is a payback, right? Yeah, I don't recall anything that I would need revenge for. Yeah, I always found you to be very fair, obviously very thorough and well-informed, but uh, really grateful for you, Chad, for for taking the time here. And, you know, we're speaking in late July, and there is a lot of time to go before the end of this congressional session. And I wanted to kind of focus on how you see the lead up to the midterms going with regard to what's happening on Capitol Hill and how both sides will position themselves for the upcoming elections. And then I won't speak for you, but I think most prognosticators believe there's a high likelihood of a change, at least in the House and and maybe what you see coming down the road in the next session to Congress, if the leadership of at least the House and potentially the Senate were to change. I just wanted to start with kind of your overall perspective here in late July of what the rest of the session looks like, and especially on the House side where, you know, there's been some high-profile hearings, there's a lot of partisanship, and then on the Senate side, you have Senator Manchin dominating the the proceedings. How how do you think the rest of the year is going to go? Well, it's going to be interesting to see just how many trips to the well the Democrats continue to take with Joe Manchin if there are any more trips. It's possible. As you know, what they did is they created what we call here on Capitol Hill a reconciliation package. Now, that is a special budget measure which allows you to go around a filibuster. And you can basically do two of these per Congress, one for each fiscal year. Now, there's some thought you have to do this by the end of September because that's the end of the government's fiscal year. That's a little shaky on that point. But the idea that they created that and Joe Manchin has fought them tooth and nail really since last summer about trying to pass some sort of a domestic spending bill using this filibuster exempt process because they can't get 60 votes for this in a 50-50 Senate. So they have to go this route. It would be hard for me to believe that even if they do this in late December or even the first couple of days of January before the Congress uh, ends, that they would burn this reconciliation package and not do something with it. Joe Manchin wants to deal with prescription drugs. He wants to deal with deficit reduction. You have a lot of Democrats who want to deal with something else, uh, climate policy, uh, education policy. There's, There's a litany of things there. Nobody quite knows what this would look like. It was a big package, more than $4 trillion last summer. They got it down to $2 trillion, then a little bit less than that. Then Joe Manchin blew it up. On Fox News Sunday, speaking to my colleague Brett Baer just before Christmas time, they've had a little bit of these conversations uh, over the past few months, and they thought they were getting close, but Joe Manchin did basically the same thing that he's done before, and so that's why they don't have a deal. But it is only mid-July. So let's see. So that that would be, you know, we would be hard pressed to see them not use that that vehicle, that parliamentary vehicle to do something. The other thing you got to watch for here is whether or not they can keep the government open at the end of September. September 30th, again, is that aforementioned deadline uh, for the fiscal year when they have to, to fund the government. They will inevitably 
do some sort of an interim spending bill, probably uh, probably past the election at minimum, if not into the next you know calendar year when we know you know what the contours of the Congress are. So probably February or March of next year. But how that comes together, that universe is not formed yet. Nobody really knows. Legislatively, those are the biggest two things they have to do. Now something they're wrestling with right now is uh, this chips bill, something very important here. But but those other two things that I mentioned a moment ago, legislatively, that's what they want to try to deal with before the end of this Congress. What do you think with regard to the House and, and some of these high-profile hearings? There, there seems to be just an unprecedented, nearly unprecedented amount of partisanship and bad feelings happening on the House side. How do you think all of that is going to play out? Well, obviously, we're probably going to have some sort of a report from the 1-6 committee and a final hearing, probably sometime in the fall, to touch on these things. I was told early on and have reported this, this is dating back to last year when they created this committee, that this was really the third impeachment of former President Donald Trump. And it was also a pre-impeachment. And if you listen to the language of Liz Cheney, the Republican representative from Wyoming, she always had said, we need to make sure that Donald Trump does not get anywhere near the White House again. Now, they have presented a pretty damning case. Republicans and loyalists to the former president say it's a, you know, it's a hack job. It's it's a partisan thing, et cetera. You know, they didn't, you know, Nancy Pelosi nixed Kevin McCarthy's picks for the committee. So the Republicans pulled completely out. And then Pelosi put Adam Kinzinger from Illinois and Cheney on the committee. So those are the two Republicans. They certainly have been able to create their own narrative in this. And there is some evidence that that's sticking a little bit. Now, does that present a problem for Democrats in these midterm elections? Republicans can say, oh, look at inflation. Look at gasoline prices. They're they're fooling around with this story and not actually, you know, pocketbook issues. Okay, fair, fair point there. But this is not so much a debate about the midterm elections. This is a debate about 2024 is what they're looking at there, if the former president, in fact, makes another bid, which a lot of people are thinking. And Republicans are very concerned, and this speaks to your question, that he might announce his bid before the midterm elections, and then every candidate along the line, every Republican candidate has to entertain these questions about Donald Trump. And maybe some of the things that have come out of these hearings and maybe some of the things he did or did not do on January 6th, and that becomes a certain issue. Maybe not so much for the candidates who are, you know, in these rock-ribbed Republican states or districts, but maybe some seats at the margins. You know, there's been some thought that Democrats have some weaknesses in some traditionally Democratic seats in Chicago and in some places in California and Florida, et cetera. And so maybe that helps them. The other thing that helps Democrats, and this probably helps them more in Senate contests than House contests, is the abortion decision in the Dobbs case a couple weeks ago from the Supreme Court, because this gets Democrats to the polls, number one. Number two, it probably helps people like Maggie Hassan, the Democratic senator from New Hampshire. It certainly helps, you know, somebody uh, like uh, like uh, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada. You look at Democratic senators, which were vulnerable, and Democrats can now go in and run on those types of things and getting their, their base to the polls because midterm elections are about the base. So, you know, when they talk about can Democrats hold the Senate? The chances there are certainly better and probably even better after the Dobbs decision. The House, the, the abortion decision maybe diminishes their losses a little bit. We'll see how the public interprets these one six committee hearings. But holding on to the House, I mean, they're down right now. You know, Democrats right now, the way the margin is in the House, they only lose four votes on their side right now 
without help from the other side and pass a bill on their own. I mean, it is pretty narrow. There is not a lot of turning radius. So holding on to the House remains uh, to be pretty challenging for the Democrats regardless. Let me go back to a point I was making earlier about Joe Manchin. Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, is basically, and this happened before Manchin blew this up, and I reported this and said this on the air and had written about it as well. Joe Manchin was being played against himself by Chuck Schumer because if they got a deal, they could say, great. If they didn't get a deal, they didn't even really have to say anything about Joe Manchin because then you can go to the polls and say, you see, give us two or three other Democratic senators Give us Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Give us Tim Ryan in Ohio. You get the idea. Val Demings in Florida, you know, and we don't know, you know, who's going to be successful here, but get us to 52, 53 votes, and then we can go around the filibuster, potentially. We can go around Joe Manchin, certainly using this special, I mentioned it earlier, budget reconciliation process. He can't stand in the way because we have Senator Fetterman or we have Senator Ryan from Ohio, et cetera. And that is a pretty compelling case for Democrats. And it might even be a more compelling case that they can make than even the abortion decision. I've heard you say that, and I think you're dead on with the way that was approached. There's a lot of frustration on the Democratic side with Senator Manchin, and I, I do think that Senator Schumer took exactly the line that you did, that he was setting Senator Manchin up to either comply and do what the Democrats wanted him to do, but I think everyone understood the more likely outcome was that Senator Manchin would not do so, would draw the ire of the base of the Democratic Party, which would fire them up for the election because they don't want to see Senator Manchin play the same role in the next session of Congress that he's playing right now, which is he decides whether or not any issue is able to proceed for a vote in the Senate. So I think that has definitely shined the spotlight on some of these races that you mentioned for the Senate. And nobody would have ever thought that Ohio was going to be competitive very few thought that uh, some of these other states that you mentioned were, were going to go the way of the Democrats. But it looks like uh, right now, even though there's expected to be this tsunami of public sentiment related to the economy and issues that drive these wave elections that you see periodically, it looks like the Senate may be able to if even remain 50-50 with a Democratic uh, margin. But perhaps pick up Democratic seats. Do you think that there's enthusiasm on the Democratic side that they realistically have a chance to do that? Certainly. And and I would pay close attention to the remarks of the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who has talked about, you know, we, meaning the Republican Party when he's speaking here, we have a history of screwing these things up. He's talking about 2010 when Republicans did not flip the Senate because of uh, a bad candidates, did not flip the Senate again in 2012 because of questionable candidates. You know, in 2010 was one of those tsunami elections where Democrats lost the House, catastrophic loss, you know, more than 60 seats in the House of Representatives, yet they held on to the Senate in the Democratic Party. And so Mitch McConnell has been willing to say those things because he's willing to, because he he knows what the, what the, the gig is here. And this is where the Republicans did not get the candidate they wanted to run against Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. Okay, that's a problem right there. We don't know about Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. You talked about Tim Ryan in Ohio. Mark Kelly is looking a little better right now in Arizona. And I think Catherine Cortez Masto, the abortion decision was really kind of a godsend for her in Nevada. At least, you know, people thought that that might put her on the ropes. Uh, there was even some polling at one point not that long ago 
that Patty Murray in Washington State was in trouble. But with the abortion decision, that probably helps her significantly. But again, do Democratic voters sit on their hands because they're like, they're mad at the party. You have people who vote with their wallet who are upset about gas prices and inflation. And then the base says, you know, we had a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, a Democratic president. We didn't get exactly what we wanted. The problem, as I said, right now, it's a four-vote margin in the House of Representatives. It's 50-50 in the Senate. It's always about the math. You've heard me say that a million times. The problem for the Democrats is that their legislative eyes were bigger than their parliamentary stomach. And you can't pass all these big things unless you have a bigger majority in both chambers. And that's bedeviled them, and that might backfire on them this fall if they don't get their base to the polls. What's your perception? You've been on Capitol Hill for a long time. You started at Fox News in 2007 and, and of course, had a background before that. There's a lot of talk about the animosity that exists between the two parties and and the lack of willingness to work together is at nearly unprecedented levels in American history. You know, maybe the Vietnam War, certainly the Civil War, but I mean, you have to go back to some very traumatic times in American history to approach what we're seeing on Capitol Hill today. Have you seen a difference over the years? Do you think it's worse today? And if so, what do you think we can do about it? I was here when Republicans flipped the House for the first time in 40 years in 1994. Newt Gingrich became Speaker, and that was a very volatile time here on Capitol Hill because Democrats were so used to being in the majority and could not believe that Republicans had the majority and, and also Republican Senate and were using it to investigate Bill Clinton and, and put the kibosh on Democratic spending priorities. It was a pretty volatile time. That was my first dance with some of this. I was not around during the Civil War, obviously. But the things I see today probably rival that. You mentioned Vietnam. It's funny. My first job in Washington in 1993 was at C-SPAN. And I'd been around politics a little bit before that. I'd worked in Ohio in college and graduate school and covered, covered John Boehner's first race for Congress in 1990, in fact, which is a whole other story when I was in college. So I'd been, I'd, had, had covered politics extensively. So I kind of knew a little bit about Congress, I think, at that point. And my first job was at C-SPAN and Brian Lamb who was the founder of C-SPAN, would have what, what he called lamb lunches, where he would take all the new employees to lunch. And so I started there in the fall of 1993, and somewhere around that period, he took me along with a bunch of others to, to lunch. And this is right when they were starting the Whitewater investigation with President Clinton, which paled in comparison to what we saw several years later with the Monica Lewinsky investigation. And Brian Lamb, I mean, one of the reasons he kind of created C-SPAN was kind of in response to the Vietnam War and how the media behaved. And uh, among other things, he was a public affairs officer at the Pentagon. And one of the other new employees said to Brian at that time, he said, oh, I can't believe how toxic this is. This is, this is the worst you've ever seen. And he said, you weren't here during Watergate. <laughs> and so again, so you talk about Vietnam, we talk about Watergate, we have these inflection points here. But I will say this, this is the difference. It's one thing, and you're naturally going to have these clashes. And I remember these clashes between Democrats and Republicans in 1995 when Republicans won control of the House. And there was all this about ag subsidies and education policy, and the Republicans were going to zero out the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and, and all these big ideas. And it just drove the Democrats up a wall. And it was very partisan, and it was very nasty at times. But the difference is this. It's one thing to be debating your colleague about agriculture policy. 
and an amendment or something like that. It's another thing to look at that same colleague across the dais. And I see this every day up here. And you have somebody, at least from the Democrats' point of view, who has supported the violence here on 1-6 or tacitly ignored the violence from the president and what happened here on January 6th and just wants to get on with things. And Molly Cottle, you know, what happened on January 6th. That is a big difference between disagreeing on social spending policy and these big fights, which should be, you know, big arguments. And that's very hard for a lot of members to get past because they literally are looking at this from other planets. And you have certain Democrats who say, how can I possibly work with that person? Because they voted to undermine the election. They're on record on that late at night on January 6th, early in the morning, January 7th, voting against the certification of the election. They have defended the former president. And I'm going to go work with them on an amendment about, you know, grain subsidies or something. You know, you see, and, and that's the disconnect right there. And that's pretty serious. And so, again, it's one thing maybe to have those discrepancies about agriculture policy in another environment, but not in this one. And that's what makes it more toxic. And it probably makes it more toxic. And I understand why the Republicans are doing this, saying, by gosh, if we get the gavel in January, you know, we're going to kick you know what and take names. And we're going to come after the members of the 1-6 committee. Adam Kinzinger is retiring. Liz Cheney faces a competitive primary. They both might be private citizens next year? Will they subpoena them, go after Hunter Biden? So, you know, in the near term, that probably is not going to get any better if the House of Representatives flips next year when it comes to policy. And the other thing that's out there that's that's really looming, and this will come up next year, is the hiking of the debt ceiling, which, as you know, is a monster vote. And dealing with how Kevin McCarthy, if he is in fact in the speaker's chair next year, how he is going to get members on his side to vote to raise the debt ceiling And why would Democrats come and say, oh, we're going to salvage you, you know, maybe just to help Joe Biden. When we get to that issue sometime next year, that is going to be as bad as the debt ceiling fight in the summer of 2011, which was pretty epic, frankly. In addition to all of the issues that you mentioned and the personalities everybody points to, you know, you have AOC and the squad on the left and you have Marjorie Taylor Greene and Congresswoman Boebert and Matt Gates and those types on the right. The problem is if you look out at the campaigns that are being waged in the country, there are about half a dozen Democrats and Republicans on both sides that candidates that have won their primaries, they're going to be members of Congress that fit the mold of those folks I was just talking about, that fit the mold of the squad, very confrontational, taking on their own party. From from the right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, both of them. So- There's reinforcements on the way for the people who are driving this polarization, who are fostering this disenchantment with compromise and and discouraging members from working together. I, I don't see any way it gets better in the next session of Congress, no matter who's in control, because there's going to be even more people from those political fringes that are now in the Congress among the ranks of those who are carrying the message. So I guess my question to you is as a reporter, and you have to cover this, the people who probably give you the best quotes are the people who are driving that dissent and, and you know, the people who, who are the most vocal about not compromising. How do you do your job 
when you know that those folks are not speaking for the leadership, they're not speaking for the people who are actually controlling the legislative agenda, but they have the loudest voice and your viewers probably want to hear from them more than anybody else. You're always going to have those factions in Congress. You're right that they're probably growing at the polls, you know, P-O-L-E-S here, you know, polar opposites in this sense in in both parties. It does create a management problem for leadership. It it might be a good thing in some respects that there's not a centralized, top-down, heavy-fisted Sam Rayburn-style leadership sometimes that, you know, there's merit in that sometimes too, frankly. But in terms of operations, this is where people think if Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker of the House, that he might not be We'll put the if first. He might not get to be Speaker of the House, even if they win, because of those types of factions who view him, A, as too conciliatory to the other side, or B, if he doesn't try to impeach President Biden, if he doesn't try to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, if they don't have robust hearings that go back and look into whatever the 1-6 committee did, at what point does he want to govern and talk? You know, remember, his message is about inflation and the economy. Well, if you're talking about all those other things which make good copy and are great political revenge stories, you're not actually governing. And so there's some people who think even if he gets the gavel, maybe he's not around too long because he's putting up with those competing forces. And by the same token, we don't know that Nancy Pelosi is going to be around. And if it is the minority and it's, you know, minority leader Hakeem Jeffries from New York or Hathlin Clark from Massachusetts or something, we don't know how that works out, how they deal with that. You're absolutely right is that you have these loud, shrill voices on both sides which command a lot of attention. And as a reporter, to answer your question, you know, you have to be very careful and mindful of the fact, am I reporting this now just because they said something outlandish or something that's going to get eyeballs or clickbait or what have you? Or, you know, is this a legitimate viewpoint here that's going to torpedo a bill or is going to cost them the votes or, as I say, the debt ceiling or government shutdown? So you have to be very mindful about putting some of those things out there. I mean, I'm willing to put anything out there because they're members of Congress. It's, you know, a member of Congress says something or tweets something. It's generally newsworthy. But again, how do you balance that in your reporting? And then I have to, this is where I like to come back and say, well, it is about the math. They need this coalition of people to get across the finish line. So, you know, regardless of their reasons, this is the problem. You know, you talk about political realities or what are the rules? What are the Senate precedents to move something through? They can talk all day about these types of things. You know, it was funny. I heard something just the other day about people were saying, we got to balance the budget. Well, you know that balancing the budget is never going to happen. It's a great campaign slogan and both sides have used it over the years. There's no way to balance the budget and say, well, we need to cut spending. Well, if you go to your average you know, constituent, uh, they would say, we'll cut to, you know, this type of education stuff or this type of subsidy somewhere, but they don't want to cut defense. And you know that that's a, a staggering portion of what we call here on Capitol Hill discretionary spending, the portion of federal spending that Congress controls. Nobody wants to touch entitlements, which is even bigger. That's two-thirds of all federal spending. And so I tried in my reporting when they say these things, and I'm just using that as an example, talking about budgetary matters, to say, well, here is the reality. This is why this is impossible to do. These are the Newtonian laws of congressional physics here, and it's not going to happen. And so even if you have to report on some of those outlandish ideas from both sides, I try to always bring it back into the universe of understanding what is possible. And it might make a great soundbite, but you know, here in reality, that's not going to happen. And so as a, as a reporter, I think I have a responsibility to, to point those things out you know, as much as I can in an objective, fair way. 
For the last question, I want to stick with that exact point. The Congress is likely to flip on, at least the House is likely to flip. Now, anything more than four, the Republicans take control. And we can argue, is it going to be 15 or 20 or 50 seats? And depending on who you talk to, you'll get a different answer. But in all likelihood, the Republicans will probably be in control in the next session of Congress. In the House, at least. Correct. So based upon your conversations with folks on the House side and the preparations that are being made, what do you think the legislative priorities are going to be for the leaders on the House side on the Republican Party? They're going to have to deal with inflation, even if it's efforts to make President Biden look bad going into the 2024 election. Okay, so that's the first thing, looking at economic issues. There's probably going to be a lot about the origins of COVID and the Wuhan lab and things like that. And again, I talk about going in and, you know, revisiting the 1-6 committee hearings, looking into Hunter Biden, a lot of conversations about his laptop. Again, that's going to be the agenda. But at what point is the public who says, wait a minute, you know, here's here's a case study in this. There was a lot of criticism here on Capitol Hill where for the first time in more than 50 years, the House Intelligence Committee, they held a hearing about UFOs. And everybody guffawed about it. It got a lot of attention. You know, there's people in the Air Force and the Navy pilots who've seen it. And they're like, this is real. And there was a lot of press interest in that story. Just the fact that first time in 50 years that they had ever looked into it. And by the way, the person who was most interested in this when they last dealt with this back in the late 60s was Minority Leader Ford, as in President Gerald Ford later, because there were a lot of sightings in his district. And he wrote about this. So anyway, so I tell you that because you have those types of things that get people's attention. And Republicans were like, can you believe that the Democrats are looking into UFOs? There was a hearing here about the Washington commanders, uh, the the football team here in Washington, D.C., Dan Snyder. The owner is going to testify here before the end of the month. Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, testified about the, the workplace culture at the commanders a couple weeks ago, and Republicans were saying, why are we looking into a football team and their workplace culture? Is that worth our, we should be focused on inflation. Okay, fine. Well, as soon as Republicans in the House, if they are in the majority, start to look into all this Hunter Biden stuff or, you know, you know, revisiting the 1-6 committee or anything like that, Democrats and frankly, voters will say, what about the economy? You know, they're, they're not just going to throw a switch as soon as Republicans uh, get the House of Representatives. Now, they will argue if they don't get the Senate. They'll say, you know, give us the Senate next time. And President, you know, Trump or whoever, President DeSantis in the White House or whoever, you know, President Nome, that will help us win in 2024. That's what we need to, to get this all worked out. But the more time they spend talking about things that don't deal with bread and butter issues probably subtracts from them because they have made so much noise about this. And this is the the fine line that a potential McCarthy speaker has to walk because, you know, what point does he go off to satisfy the base and we're going to impeach Biden or somebody else uh, and dealing with actual, you know, what's the price of eggs and milk? Well, this has been a treat, Chad. Chad Pergram is the congressional correspondent for Fox News. He is absolutely one of the best in the business. Nobody does it better. It's been a treat to have you on. Thank you, Chad, for being with us. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Career Education Report. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit our website at career.org and follow us on Twitter at CQED. That's at C-E-C-U-E-D. Thank you for listening.